You're listening to Crossroads International Church Podcast. Welcome. We hope this podcast will bless you from wherever you're listening to it. For more information, go to our website at xrds.nl. And now, let's get into the podcast. Good morning. Before we continue with the sermon, I'd like to take this opportunity to reintroduce our speaker for today, J.D. J.D. Atkins. Um, did you know that he actually spoke on Easter morning? <laughs> and did you know that we actually invited him on the preaching team now? And he said gracefully yes, and we're very excited to have him on the team. J.D. is a is an associate professor of New Testament languages and literature at Tyndale Theological Seminary. And he and his wife, Alice, have been faithfully serving us and, and working with the staff over the last, uh, last year. It's been great to get to know them a little bit. And J.D. will today kick off our series in James. In fact, you found a little card on your seat. And uh, for this series, we're going to ha- hand out memory verses every Sunday. So this is your memory verse for today. All right? J.D., why don't you come up? James. I started reading the letter you sent. The first thing you say is, consider it a great joy whenever you experience various trials. Seriously, James? I've just lost everything. My home, gone. My job, gone. And you want me to consider it a great joy? I've had friends and family Die, James. And you want me to consider it a great joy? I'm sorry, James. But you've lost it. You are out of touch with reality. Stop being a holier-than-thou religious weirdo and start living in the real world. But joy is available, Levi. Even with all this tragedy, joy is possible. Remember the prophet Habakkuk? He and his community were facing poverty, starvation, and war. How did he respond? He said, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One kooky old prophet from hundreds of years ago. What does he have to do with me? All right, all right, Levi. But what about our brothers, Peter and John? You remember when they were arrested and flogged by the Sanhedrin? How did they respond? They went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name of Jesus. Okay, James, I'll give you that one. They did have genuine joy. Yeah, they did. And remember our other brothers? When the authorities came and plundered their property, do you remember how they responded? They joyfully accepted the whole thing. Levi, 
these are not isolated incidents. Think about other examples in the New Testament, like Paul and Silas and the churches of Thessalonica and Macedonia and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia. They all face suffering, all kinds of suffering, bodily ailments, insults, extreme poverty, imprisonment, torture, yes, and even the death of loved ones. And how did they respond? They still had joy. Joy is possible, Levi, and you can have it too. Well, I hope you enjoyed my little fictional dialogue between James, the brother of Jesus, and the original recipients of his letter. But let me back up and give you a little background. Today, we are starting a new sermon series on the letter of James. And though it is a letter, a real letter, it's also a piece of wisdom literature, like Proverbs uh, and Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. And in this short letter, James drops a lot of wisdom on us. In fact, James drops a whole series of wisdom cluster bombs. But in order to understand them, you need to understand the original context. Verse 1 tells us that James was writing to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. In other words, Jewish expats. Or more specifically, Jewish Christian expats. These were Jews who believed in Jesus, uh, but did not live in Israel. They were scattered across various cities throughout the ancient world. But they weren't just any kind of expat. They were a particular kind of expat. You see, that little phrase, dispersed abroad, comes from the Greek word for diaspora. James was writing to refugees. In particular, James was probably thinking primarily about the refugees who had recently fled from the persecution that happened in Jerusalem. You can read about it in Acts 8.1. But this group of refugees was dear to James because they were his people, people from his home church community. Now, refugees experience profound trials of many kinds. Just imagine for a moment losing your home, losing your job, being forced to move to a new country where you live as a minority. And as, as sadly is still often the case today, minority groups back then were usually marginalized and oppressed by those in power. The rest of the letter indicates that these Jewish Christian refugees were poor people who were being oppressed by the rich. So many of them escaped one set of trials in their hometown only to find another set of trials in their new environments. They escaped violence, but they landed in poverty. One trial after another. And it is in this context that James says, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Now this might seem absurd or insensitive, but before we dismiss it, we should remember who is writing the letter. You see, James was no armchair theologian writing from the peace and comfort of his ivory tower. Far from it. 
James, he may not have been facing the exact same trials that his readers are now facing. But it's because when the persecution broke out in Jerusalem, James didn't flee. He stayed put. He faced it. And then shortly after, famine and severe poverty struck the church in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Acts as well. So James actually had it worse off than his readers. In fact, because he stayed in Jerusalem, it was not long after writing this letter that James was brutally killed for his faith. He died as a martyr. Now, that being said, I don't want you to get the wrong impression that the kinds of trials that James is talking about in his letter are limited to religious persecution or socioeconomic oppression or something like that. Now, James in verse 2 says, whenever you experience various trials. The Greek word pervarious is a word that means a wide variety. James uses this word deliberately to make sure that you know his teaching applies not just to one or two kinds of trials, but to many, many different kinds of trials that we face in life. And the rest of the letter, uh, you can see it deals not only with the trials of being poor, but also the trials of being rich. Not only the trials of physical pain from persecution, but the trials of physical illness. Not only the trials of conflict with other people, but the trials of losing loved ones. Now, James's goal is for us to get to the point in facing trials where we can consider the joy. But James is a realist. He knows this is not easy to do. When you're suffering, joy is one of the last things on your mind. James knows that what he's asking is pretty much impossible without some supernatural help. So one of the first pieces of advice that James gives is to ask God for help. More specifically, to ask God for wisdom. Now, if any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Wisdom is the main thing that you need to face trials. It's so much easier to face a trial if you're not left to flail in the dark of mystery. And God promises to give us fresh perspective on our suffering if we ask him for it. Amen. But right here, James also pauses to add a caveat. He says, but let them ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like a surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now, when you place these verses in the context of the whole chapter, it becomes clear that James is describing two ways to respond to trials and suffering. Or perhaps to be more accurate, accurate two pathways that we can travel when we face trials and suffering. There's a pathway of doubt on the one hand, and there's a pathway of faith on the other. Now, there's a diagram up there. It's going to be flashing back and forth on uh, a few times, so don't worry if you don't catch it all right now. First, let's look at this pathway of doubt. It's really important to understand what James does and does not mean by doubt. Because if you mess this up, you're going to be led astray. First... If you go to God in prayer, 
and cry out, why, O oh Lord? Why is this happening to me? It doesn't seem fair. That is not doubt. Let me be very clear. That is not doubt. In fact, that is the, exactly the kind of prayer James is calling us to pray. You see, if you lack wisdom, ask God for it. Asking the question why, that's a wisdom question. It's a wisdom prayer that many of the psalmists prayed. And James is not dis condemning such prayers. The second thing that James is not talking about is he's not talking about doubting how God, how God will answer a prayer. Or, or he's not talking about doubts about whether God will do this or that specific thing. You see, when I first read this passage as a teenager, I thought, okay, if I ask God for a specific thing, like uh, an A on a test, yes, I'm a nerd, or a new car, or whatever else, then I have to be absolutely certain that God will give me that specific thing, otherwise I'm a doubter, and he won't answer my prayers. But see, that kind of name it and claim it theology is decidedly not what James is talking about in context. James is not referring to doubts about what God uh, will do in terms of answering very particular prayers. No, in context, James is warning about doubting God's character. More specifically, doubting his goodness, generosity, and grace. Notice how he says it in verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly. James here emphasizes the generosity and grace of God. The word there for, uh, the Greek word there uh, for ungrudgingly literally means without reproach, meaning, in other words, without reproach for sin. Think about that. God gives generously even when we're not perfect, even when we don't have it all together. He is still gracious. Now, if you're a Christian believer, you need to get your theology of suffering correct here. This is important. Sometimes when trials and suffering come, you might be tempted to think, oh, I must have done something wrong. God is punishing me for my sins. But that would be bad theology. You see, if you're a believer, if you've put your trust in Christ, then Jesus has already taken the punishment for all your sins on the cross. Let that sink in for a minute. If Jesus has taken, already taken the punishment for your sins, then your current suffering is not God punishing you for your sins. It can't be. That would make God unjust. God would be doling out punishment twice for the same sins. Nor, nor, can your current suffering mean that God doesn't love you? He suffered and died on a cross for you. He definitely loves you. So if you're a believer, you must be suffering for another reason. It might be that other people are causing you to suffer. It might simply be due to the fact that you're living in a broken world where moth and rust destroy and where bodies grow old and decay. It might be that evil forces are at work behind the scenes, as in the book of Job, 
Or it might be that you're suffering the inevitable but thoroughly natural consequences of the poor choices you have made in life. But if you're a believer, the one thing that it cannot be is that God is punishing you for your sins. Jesus already took that punishment for you. In any case, James here, the kind of doubt that he's warning against is a very specific kind of doubt. It's doubting God's goodness, generosity, and grace. This is important for another reason. When uh, we doubt God's goodness and generosity, when you do that, your trials might turn into temptations. This is why James says in verse 13, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. See, James is saying, when you face trials and temptations, remember the character of God. He's so good, he can't even be tempted by evil. And he certainly doesn't tempt anyone. He's generous and gracious, even with sinners. And as the father of heavenly lights, he gives good and perfect gifts to his children. In short, he is utterly trustworthy. You see, it's when we doubt this about God, that's when temptation becomes powerful. This has been true since the Garden of Eden. When God created Adam and Eve, his goodness and generosity were emphasized. God created a world for them that was not just good, but what? Very good. He made a bountiful garden paradise for them to live in. Even his first command displayed his generosity. He said, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on that day you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, I want you to think about this. He gives generously and puts only one restriction on them. He literally gives them the whole world except for one tree. If that's not generosity, I don't know what is. And that one restriction that he could put was for their own protection. Then, of course, along comes the serpent and says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Do you see what the serpent is doing there? He's making God seem stingy and evil rather than good and generous. And once they start doubting God's generosity and goodness, the rest is history. They gave in to temptation. When we doubt God's goodness, when we stop trusting his commands or for our good, it's easy to turn away and be lured by sin. We might even blame God for it. If God's holding out on you, after all, if he's withholding good things from you, why not look elsewhere? Why not give in to temptation to get the blessings you want? Of course, once you give in to temptation, the next time it's a little bit easier. And eventually, sinful habits become more established in your life. Sin matures, and it takes control. As James puts it, each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is 
fully grown, it gives birth to death. That is the pathway of doubt. And if you stay on it, it ultimately leads to spiritual death. But the whole process begins when we're deceived into thinking that God is not good and gracious. Therefore, James exhorts all of us. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. In other words, he's not just good and generous. He's always good and generous. He does not change. Now, let me tell you about the pathway of faith. It's found in verses 2 to 4 of the chapter, uh, and then also in verse 12. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And then in verse 12, blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, the teaching of the Bible is consistent. Every Christian faces trials and suffering. You can't avoid them by being extra faithful or extra righteous. Anyone who tells you otherwise, James will say, that's a fool. The question is not if you're going to face trials and suffering. But how are you going to respond whenever they happen? Then there are two basic options. The pathway of doubt that leads to spiritual death or the pathway of faith that leads to spiritual maturity and the crown of life. So let's unpack this second pathway. In verse 3, James gives us the first reason why we should consider it a great joy when we experience trials. He says, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, got to get this one correct here as well. The Greek word for testing there in verse 3 is a word from the world of metallurgy. Yeah, I'm going to have to do like a little lesson on metallurgies. Uh, what are you going to do? So, so, so don't think of it as a math test in school, right? It's not that kind of test. So James here is really, he's thinking about smelting. That's a fun word to say. You know, try it, smelting. <laughs> smelting is the process that you use to refine precious metals. So, I mean, basically, first you go, you dig some ore out of a mine. An ore is a mixture of metal and other elements. And then you take the ore and you place it in high heat, a blast furnace of sorts. And that in intense heat liquefies the metal so that it can be easily separated from other minerals and impurities. And as a result, in the end, the metal you get is pure, stronger, more resilient, more useful, more vibrant, and beautiful. But to make this process work, you have to make the furnace hot enough to push the metal to its melting point. My dear brothers and sisters, here is the message of James to those of you who are suffering under various trials. God wants to make your faith pure, stronger, 
more resistant, more useful, more vibrant, more beautiful. But for that to happen, your faith needs to be pushed to its melting point. And that means the heat of the blast furnace. That means trials and suffering. It's no fun, no fun at all. But God allows these things to happen to us so that we can reach full spiritual maturity. You see, if you want, to make, if you want your faith to grow, it must be stretched. It must be pushed to its melting point. And that means trials and tribulations. You may have heard the famous statement of Paul that God works all things for good. Well, this is one of the ways he does that. I'll be honest, I don't fully understand it. But it's a bit like a divine form of judo. If you don't know what judo is, it's a martial art where the strategy is to turn your opponent's force and strength to your own advantage. So you take his strength and his force and you use it for yourself. You see, God doesn't tempt anyone and he doesn't punish believers for sins that Christ has already paid for. But he does take all the force of all the evil that happens to believers in this fallen world and he redirects it to refine us and make us spiritually stronger, more resilient, wiser, and more beautiful. He takes the heed of the trials, to that, that seek, those trials that seek to, in a sense, destroy our faith, and he redirects it so that it refines our faith. The testing or smelting of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may, be mature, you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. But here's the thing. In our age of instant gratification, online or on-demand videos, and lightning-fast internet, we don't really have the patience for this long process. We expect all good things immediately without cost or suffering. Our attention spans have grown short. We've lost our, comp our, our capacity for complexity and nuance. We want everything simplified into 15-second TikTok videos. We want our news reported to us in overly simplistic sound bites. We even want our sermons short. Don't worry, I won't go much longer. In such a world, it's harder to appreciate the benefits of suffering. One of the few arenas where we still appreciate it is sports. And fortunately, James draws on a sporting metaphor in verse 12. He says, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Here we have the image of the victor's crown in an athletic competition. Athletes willingly, sometimes even joyfully, endure suffering during their training. Why? Because they know it will build their muscles, it will build their endurance, it will sharpen their skills. No pain, no gain, says the coach. James wants us to see that the same is true when it comes to spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity doesn't happen without suffering. So the first clue at a how to, as to how to have joy in the midst of suffering, is to remember that God is good and he will use that experience to stretch your faith 
into something stronger and more mature and more beautiful. But to have joy in suffering does not mean that it, it doesn't mean this. It, it's not wrong, or right, it, it, it's not wrong to grieve or groan or cry while you're suffering. Just because James is saying have joy, he's not saying don't grieve. He's not saying don't groan, don't cry. Not at all. What he means is that while you're grieving, while you're groaning, while you're crying, you don't have to lose hope. You can look forward to the joy that God in his divine judo will bring something good out of it. But there's more. You see, the pathway of faith and enduring suffering doesn't simply lead to spiritual maturity in this life. No, it also leads to the crown. The crown of life when Jesus returns. See, Jesus promises this reward in the book of Revelations to Christians who are suffering tribulations and trials. He says, be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Many Christians that I've encountered they tend to think that the victorious Christian life is a life in which God delivers you from suffering and poverty in the present world. But that is not at all what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the victorious Christian life is, one's is when one's faith is mature enough to endure suffering and remain faithful, even unto death if necessary. It's those who endure suffering with their faith intact that receive the victor's crown of life. But we've been talking about this crown. What is it? What is this crown of life? Well, it, it's the greatest blessing that there is. It's nothing less than God's promise to put an end to suffering forever. It's resurrection language. God will raise us up in transformed bodies that cannot decay and suffer, that can keep on running and never grow weary, that know no pain, but only pleasure. And when we get these bodies, we will reign with God forever and ever as kings and queens over a new heaven and a new earth. That is what the crown of life is all about. That's a hope worth rejoicing about. Even when our suffering is at its worst, we can rejoice knowing that God will one day, in the end, finish it off permanently. He'll let us exchange our crowns of thorns for a crown of life. But here's the thing. What if you're just really struggling to trust in all these promises in the midst of your suffering? Well, James give us, gives us a final clue in verse 18. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth. You see, God knows that we're fallen creatures who struggle to get off the pathway of doubt when we're dealing with suffering. So God made a choice. He decided to give us new birth by the word of truth so we could start down a new pathway. You see, in place of the deception that begins the pathway of doubt, he gives us the word of truth. Well, what is this word of truth? And how can it help us trust in God's promises even to the point where we could have joy in the midst of our trials? Well, in the New Testament, the word of truth 
was just another way of referring to the gospel, the gospel message. At the heart of the gospel message is this, the trials and sufferings of our Savior. You see, the word of truth about Jesus' trials and sufferings can change your perspective on your own suffering. It can change your perspective so radically that James has to use language of being born again. You see, Jesus, too, experienced trials. He, too, was put into the blast furnace and smelted. He was born into poverty and lived his life as a poor man. He was betrayed by someone close to him. That hurts. He was abandoned by his friends. That hurts too. He was arrested and falsely accused, tortured, publicly humiliated, and crucified. And in the midst of all of it, Jesus held on to joy. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. It was the joy that made him endure. And that joy was you. He endured it all for you. He's not some aloof, uncaring deity who stands in the comfort of heaven and watches us suffer in the blast furnace. No, he's the kind of God that jumps in and suffers with us. And not just with us, but for us. Now, it's important, just one final thing here. It's important for us to note that Jesus didn't simply die on the cross. He endured it, despising its shame. Do you remember the story? The people all around, they were mocking him, taunting him. Jump down from the cross and prove that you're the son of God. Then we'll believe in you. How tempting that must have been for Jesus. I mean, he could have quit, you know. He could have jumped down off the cross. He could have escaped all that terrible pain. But he didn't. He stayed. For the joy that lay before him, he endured. That, my dear brothers and sisters, is the word of truth. He wasn't just gracious. He was so generous, he gave his life. That's, that is why there is no reason in the midst of your suffering to doubt that God is good and gracious and generous. If you went into the furnace and God used it for good, you can trust that your suffering in God's divine judo will be redirected for good as well. He stayed for you, friends. He endured for you. He did it for the joy so that you might know that no matter what you're going through, your joy and your crown are guaranteed. If he endured for you, even when it cost him everything, you can be sure that he will make good on his promises in the end. And that is a word of truth we can celebrate anytime. No trial can take away from us. Lord, I ask that you would help us to receive this word from your servant James. Lord, we thank you for his testimony, his life of enduring trials and remaining faithful. 
Lord, we ask that you would help us to have joy even when there's no visible reason to have joy. Help us to remember what you did for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you have a wonderful week. See you next time.